Very good. Thank you and good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the school committee meeting of December 7th, 2022. Um, I'd like to call this meeting to order at 7.01 p.m. The first thing on our agenda is to approve the agenda. And we do have a, a couple of changes on the agenda. Um, number six that's listed as the school building committee update will not occur tonight. So you can cross that off uh, of the agenda. And um, uh, under finance, uh, we uh, will not be taking a vote uh, next to the FY24 budget. Uh, we'll be hearing about it, but we won't be, be taking a vote on that this evening. Um, are there any other uh, changes or deletions that anyone else needs to share? Okay, hearing none, we'll move along. And next thing on the agenda is superintendent's updates. I'll turn it over to uh, Superintendent Sheehan. You're muted. Thank you, Chair Rosemarin. I'm very happy to introduce um, members of our leadership team this evening. We have uh, V. Vu, our Director of Data Analytics. We have Karen McDavid, our Principal of the Glover School. Brian Seelig, our K-12 Math Director. Um, Lauren Vanacore is our Pre-K-8 Director of Literacy. And we have H. Hardy, who is our Milton High School English Department Head. I'm going to turn this over to, um, to V. Vu at this time. Good evening, everyone. So I am going to be uh, sharing my screen. Hopefully I can do that from here. Um, and we will get going with uh, the district data review for the fall. All right. Okay, I just wanna check and make sure are people able to see my screen? Yes, we can see yes. it. Okay, perfect. Um, okay, so tonight I'm going to be sharing a little bit of data um, on the fall Lexia and iReady screener, along with some of our IntelliSpark survey data. Um, and I say a little bit because as this is our first point of data of the year, um, and you know, usually the first point of data is really just the benchmark, the baseline for the year. And it's what we use to kind of measure growth and progress for the rest of the year. Um, so I won't have a lot of uh, growth data to share with you, but our curriculum directors are all here tonight to kind of fill you in on what we're doing in the district in each of the respective curriculum areas. And hopefully that will give you uh, a more comprehensive um, view of what's going on in uh, Milton Public Schools. So again, you know, just wanted to say that this fall data is a snapshot in time. So usually when we look at data at this level, we really are looking to see if there are patterns um, that we can see in the data to inform our decisions about any programmatic changes that we need to make, any, you know, redirection of resources that we need to make. So um, this is really not meant to you know, tell you exactly uh, what needs to be done with individual students. I think for that, 
Um, I'm aware that the, the elementary is having their parent-teacher conference tomorrow and report cards just came out today. You know, in order to evaluate really how individual students are doing, we really need to get to the teacher levels where teacher will be using, you know, Alexia and iReady and IntelliSpark as one part of the equation for evaluating students' progress on learning standards in the district and, and parent-teacher conference would be a perfect opportunity to really talk to your children's um, educators about how they are doing um, and the progress that they're making, okay? So for those who um, may be new, um, Lexia Rapid is a computer adaptive norm reference diagnostic um, assessment of children's foundational skills in literacy and, you know, we really hope that um, if we fill up all the foundational gaps that students might have, that would translate to um, doing well uh, later on in the year on the MCAS as well. But sometimes that's not always the case because they are two different assessments that are built for different purposes. So Lexia is really evaluating any foundational gaps that children might have when they're learning how to read once they learn how to read already and you know they have the foundational skills in place then they still have to be able to apply a lot of the skills and um, as well as learn to really um, progress their learning on specific standards that Massachusetts has put out for each grade level in each subject area okay um, so the other thing about Lexia that I wanted to make this committee aware of is that um, Lexia is sunsetting this year. So at the end of this year, the, the vendor um, is closing down Lexia Rapid. So our district is in the process of researching and picking out another diagnostic screener um, to use with students to evaluate their literacy skills when they come into our system. Um, so in addition to Lexia Rapid, uh, MPS also implemented iReady Math uh, two years ago in the midst of the pandemic to really help us evaluate uh, our students learning in math. And when we did that, that was really the first time that we've had kind of district-wide data collection on students' math learning um, in the district. And you know, that has been found, iReady in particular, have been found to have high correlation with MCAS performance, at least pre-pandemic. So post-pandemic, the, um, the vendor iReady is actually undergoing a, a study to, to see if the correlation still uphold, and they say that their results will be forthcoming in the spring. So we will definitely be taking a look at that to um, evaluate whether, you know, this is still the right assessment for us to use going forward. Okay, so this graph is really telling you um, the percentage of students in the fall um, who are testing um, above grade level, which is in the blue, on grade level in the green, or below grade level um, in the gray bars. And I have put on here kind of comparative data from the last uh, three collections of fall I read of fall Lexia data. 
So fall 1920, we didn't do a collection for fall 2021. Um, then we did a collection for fall 21, 22, and then presently 22, 23. And you can kind of see um, what the distribution looks like across the grade level from K through eight. And the other thing I would also draw your attention to is in K, we're re really looking at the, the subtests that evaluate phonological awareness, because that is one of the indicator for early, um, early reading literacy. In grade one and grade two, we're evaluating word reading, and then grade three through eight, we're really looking at the comprehension, the reading comprehension subtest, okay? And this is kind of what the data is shaking out like for the past three years, the past three falls that we've had data collection on this. And you see for, you know, for our early learners, um, our K student and even grade two students, um, there, there is some gap there that we're seeing this fall. And that may be a result of, you know, the past couple of years of uninterrupted learning, of interrupted learning rather. Um, and that is something that the district is looking into and really paying close attention to. And I'm sure um, Lauren, our director of K-8 literacy, will be happy to talk to you all about that in a, in a little bit. Now I'm gonna move us on to the next slide. So this is looking at the Lexia fall data, but breaking it down by the various subgroups that uh, we are kind of tracking in the district to get a sense of how students in each subgroup are performing. And if you look at this slide, you see that there are definitely some gaps in performance between the different subgroups. You can kind of see where those fall um, by race, by low income status, by IEP status, by um, EL status, and by gender. Um, and some of these groups are, you know, the gaps that we see here are the gaps that we see repeated over and over again um, over the years. And what we hope to do every year is of course, by the end of the year, we would like to see some of these gaps close um, for you know, some of our subgroup students here. And that's the goal. Okay, so now I'm gonna move you on to the iReady Math and same format as Lexia. I pulled the data for the falls that we've had data collection. So fall 21, 22, and then this, this fall that just occurred. And you can kind of see where they fall. The color coding is kind of similar. So blue is mid or on grade, mid on grade or above level, and green is early on grade level. Yellow is one grade level below, orange two grades level below, and then red are the the three or more grades level below. And I know for, for iReady, as for Lexia, you know, students who are 
in this yellow band here, it's still relatively early in the year. Some of these students took this assessment in September, you know, when they first came back to school. So they haven't really had any instruction yet in the new school year. So this data just indicates to us where they are when they started school with us this year. And like I said before, by the end of the year, we would hope that a lot of these colors, a lot of these um, blue and green category would move up and, and close a lot of um, this room uh, for growth for us. Um, so one thing that I did wanna point out is in grade K, again, we kind of see this dip in the fall data. Um, and one note that I, I did wanna make is that the kindergartners for this year, for fall 22 and 23, uh, they were tested in September versus the kindergartners in fall 21 and 22 who were tested later. So in November and December after they've had some instruction. So we think that that might have, you know, contributed a little bit to this gap differential here. Um, but Ryan Selig, our math director, will also be talking with you all about all the programs, changes, and supports that we have in place for elementary math. Okay, and this slide is looking at the sub subgroup data for iReady math. And similar to the Lexia data, you can see the breakdown by race, by low income status, IEP status, EL status, and gender. And you see some of the similar gaps for these subgroups that we're tracking here. Um, and again, our goal is really by the end of the year, we want the blue and the green to be pretty at a pretty similar place for all the, all the, all the student groups that we have in here. So, all right, so now I'm gonna turn the slide over to, to Lauren, um, our K-8 Literacy Director, to talk to you more about what we're doing in the elementary and middle school, and then H. Hardy will be on to speak to you about what we're doing in ELA for the high school. Good evening, thank you, V. Um, so yes, first, these are some action steps that we're taking at the elementary level to help address the literacy needs of our students. Um, these action steps are in place in part in response to our Lexia data, but also in response to our many other sources of data, our spring MCAS scores, our curriculum-based assessments. Um, so one thing that's new this year is our reading specialists at the elementary level are implementing a new intervention program. It comes from the University of Florida's Literacy Institution, um, and it's their foundations program, which is an explicit and systematic um, program teaching foundational literacy skills. So targeting phonemic awareness, decoding and encoding, so their reading and spelling skills and building um, reading fluency. Um, it's also an educative program where there's professional development that's part of the package that teachers have access to. Um, in pre-K and kindergarten, we're implementing Hegarty Phonemic Awareness Curriculum. This is something that started about mid-year last year, um, and now we're 
going to be implementing it for a full year. Um, this is also a additional kind of source of professional development for teachers in that um, all of our staff in the pre-K and kindergarten classrooms um, through the Hibridi curriculum, they have access to professional development sources and also the lessons can be pre-recorded for them. They can um, have a literacy specialist from Hegarty who delivers the lessons, which kind of allows for modeling for teachers and it also frees them up to be kind of listening in and working with students as they're doing that. Um, we also have a early literacy reading specialist. Um, this is grant funded, um, who's working with preschool and kindergarten students across the district. Um, she also works with the teachers to provide professional development um, support for classroom. This position really targets those foundational skills, phonemic awareness, and then building that explicit connection to their phonics skills. Um, we have a additional third grade reading specialist who's starting um, in January. This is another grant funded position. Um, really excited about this. Um, Previously, we've had just one third grade reading specialist spread across all four elementary schools. So to add a second position is really exciting for us. Um, we also wanna highlight that our Reach for Reading ELA curriculum provides opportunities for um, extended extensions and challenges for all students. Um, there's opportunities for students to be applying their skills to complex texts um, at all levels. There are extension opportunities um, for developing speaking, listening, reading, writing skills. Um, so we're really trying to target not only our students who might need some extra support and literacy, but those who need a little bit more challenge as well. We continue to um, use Lexia Core 5. Um, that's different than the Lexia Rapid Screening Tool. Core 5 is our adaptive learning platform. And this provides individualized practice for every student meeting their needs where they're at. Um, it is a research-based um, improvement program that we use in the um, students use it throughout their uh, school day in the week. And it um, uses its own kind of assessment model where then it engages students in activities that meet them where they are working on whatever area of literacy they really need the most support in, in that time, whether it's developing their phonemic awareness skills, phonics, comprehension, vocabulary, um, working on fluency, and it really meets, it's an opportunity to provide extra support for students who need it, but also to push and stretch um, students who are ready for that as well. This year, we also have a grant funded before school program that our English language learners are engaging in. And this is an opportunity for them to strengthen and develop their literacy skills. Um, and we've also had some opportunity to offer professional development development and some additional specialized training for our special educators who are supporting students with specific learning disabilities. And then B, do you mind um, advancing us to the next slide? Thanks. All right, at Pierce, um, with our reading specialists, we continue to implement the READ 180 Adaptive um, Reading Intervention Program. This is a reading intervention program for students. Um, it's intended for students in grades K through 12. And um, not only does it have um, a digital component where students have a learning platform online that they use, there's also small group reading materials, and there's also um, a data dashboard that our reading specialist is able to use to um, gather a tremendous amount of data on what some of our students 
most need to work on and to be able to develop those skills. We also have just started implementing um, an explicit multi-sensory decoding and spelling intervention program. Um, this is just words. And it's a um, explicit multi-sensory decoding program for students who have kind of like a mild to moderate level of deficit with their um, decoding and encoding skills. So we kind of noticed that some of our students who are receiving that gen ed um, tier two uh, reading intervention needed to not just work on their comprehension, but also even make sure that those foundational phonics skills were in place. And so this is an opportunity to really um, solidify those skills. We continue, we're in year three of our ongoing implementation of the Amplify ELA curriculum. Um, and we are fortunate to have um, scheduled in place. We have one time per cycle. Um, each grade level is able to meet as a curricular team to um, collaborate on their planning, their implementation of the um, program, and also kind of calibration of assessment and looking at how we are assessing our students with our curriculum-based measures. Um, and in addition, we also use that grade level curriculum meeting time that happens each time per cycle um, to triangulate our data between our curriculum data sources, MCAS data, um, along with sources like Lexia. Thank you, V. Okay. Hi, everybody. I'm, I'm Hugh Hardy, uh, English department head at the high school. And the the major thing that we're working on this year is having looked at the eighth grade writing samples from the MCAS and comparing them to the 10th grade writing samples, both the uh, successful ones and the less successful ones. What we saw wasn't so much a problem in, in presenting the idea and answering a prompt. Uh, students seem to do well with that, but it's in writing stamina, the, the, the depth and therefore the length of the writing. So what we're doing is a nine through 12 focus on increasing the uh, the number of revision assignments and working on revision strategies to force students to go back into something that they've written and figure out how to make it better, how to make it more sophisticated. Uh, and that we think is going to, to definitely help raise the MCAS scores and certainly get them uh, better ready for college writing levels. Uh, we're doing some PD collaboration time as department using our uh, collective expertise and sharing our strategies that we've done on revisions and figure out which works best and which doesn't. Uh, and then as the year goes on, we'll be sitting down and comparing the data and results from the revision assignments to see you know, what we're seeing in terms of improvement in student writing as we do that. Uh, the next uh, big thing, a super exciting thing about this year is the uh, new senior English curriculum that's debuted, which uh, gives the students who are not taking AP uh, rather than all taking a general English 4 course, uh, they're taking a genre fiction course of interest uh, each semester. So they're, they're, they may take African-American literature in the fall and then dystopian fiction literature in the spring. Uh, and what we're finding is we're seeing the students who are generally uh, getting maybe a little jaded by English classes their senior year are a lot more excited about what they're doing and a lot more engaged uh, and, and therefore helping with their thinking, writing, and speaking skills. We're also piloting this year uh, in that, and this, that info is not on the slide, I apologize. Um, the, the, those courses are all honors. We want to have every senior exposed to an honors level English class before they go off to college. Uh, and what we're doing is those the senior teachers are providing a lot of support 
to help the students uh, be successful and see, you know, this is what uh, a, a honors level or, or what a college level English class may look like and help them be better ready for that. Uh, and then in addition to those supports in those classes, just general supports offered across 9 through 12, uh, we have a, a wide variety to try to help fit what works best for the student, both in terms of what's best for them in, in support and what for, works best with their schedules. We have, uh, as it says on there, homework club, uh, peer tutoring offered through the National Honor Society before and after school. We have MCAS support, uh, which is both more general MCAS support and more specifically this year in the fall when we had students who had to retake the test. Uh, we actually sit down and pulled the, uh, the files on every single student, looked at their test from the spring, figured out what they needed to work on, uh, and sat down either through their academic support teacher or through their uh, the ELL teacher and had them do the extra work, uh, which we hope will uh, have paid off. Uh, and then there's also teachers are available to give extra help both before and after school and then during advisory every day. Uh, the next thing that we're uh, looking at going into uh, next year would be some, what, what would work well in terms of common assessments uh, at the high school level English? Uh, would it be writing, critical analysis, perhaps grammar? Uh, these are all things we're starting to explore. And finally, another uh, very exciting one. This has uh, just happened uh, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, we've been approved by the College Board to pilot an AP African American Studies course next year. And it's going to be a hybrid course. It's both English and social studies uh, offered through the College Board. Brand new, brand new course. Uh, and uh, Barbara Wright, uh, who is uh, the chair of uh, social studies, and I are, are incredibly excited about uh, putting that course together and offering it next year. And that, uh, that wraps that up. Thank you, H. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm Brian Selig, the math uh, director, K-12. Um, so before I speak specifically about each level and the, and the um, exciting things that we have going on math-related at elementary, middle, and high school, um, I just want to reiterate and build on a few of the things that B said about the um, iReady diagnostic uh, data that she shared earlier. Um, I think first and foremost, it's important to note that um, decline in uh, math performance has gotten uh, a lot of attention. Um, uh, NAEP, there was a report recently about NAEP scores and, and uh, United States performance on those falling uh, even lower by comparison to other countries and on just a, a, a lot of, of very understandable attention being paid to the impact particularly of the pandemic on uh, math proficiency. Um, and so it's important for us in Milton to keep in mind that while we do uh, certainly recognize and want to address um, gaps that our students have in their math proficiency to attain success, success with on grade level content, um, the iReady data for our district is very favorable compared to that across uh, other districts in Massachusetts and across the country. Um, the other thing I want to point out is that, and, and be alluded to this, we sort of have a different idea and approach to how we address students who have just a few uh, gaps that might uh, impede their full access to on-grade level content, and those probably by that slide could be considered uh, in yellow, that sort of on average one grade level below. These are students that are um, with just a little bit of attention uh, well positioned to access the content of the grade that they are entering or at this point are now in 
uh, whereas those students um, who are multiple grade levels below uh, need something more significant in order to be brought up to speed. Um, so again, I'm not trying to in any way diminish the importance of making sure that we're uh, aware of and know who our students are who um, are behind and, and have a plan to, um, to accelerate their learning up to speed. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important for us to also be aware um, that by comparison to uh, a lot of other districts, a lot of other communities, and a lot of other uh, areas of the country, um, the pandemic has not had as dramatic uh, of an adverse impact on our school community as it has on others. Uh, with that said, the sort of biggest um, step that a district can take to really uh, accelerate learning and address unfinished learning and learning loss from the pandemic is to implement um, high quality, well-aligned uh, curriculum materials. And uh, I'm proud to share that we are in that process uh, at all three levels. Uh, starting with elementary, we have two brand new uh, curricula in place, um, one in kindergarten called Bridges in Mathematics and another uh, in grades one through five called Into Math. Uh, this was, as I reported to the committee, uh, the outcome of uh, an extensive process by a committee of uh, educators and stakeholders spanning uh, different levels, uh, buildings uh, at the elementary level. And um, very proud of the work of that group and the results of their work in selecting these two programs and implementing them um, effectively this fall. Uh, to support that implementation, uh, we've had um, extensive professional development opportunities um, for teachers to date and uh, just applied for a significant amount of additional grant funding to try to support um, some more intensive in-person professional development opportunities for the springtime and uh, next year, carrying into next year uh, as well. So I look forward to updating the committee on the outcome of that grant application as soon as we hear back. Um, as uh, V alluded to, uh, we don't have quite an apples to apples comparison of our kindergarten data from iReady itself. Um, we chose a different time uh, to administer the assessment for the uh, first time last year compared to this year. Um, it's also apparent uh, in our new curriculum that there is sort of a better, more appropriate developmentally uh, design of assessments embedded into our Bridges curriculum to where it may not be necessary to continue to administer iReady on the computer in uh, kindergarten moving forward beyond this year. Um, so what we also gained from iReady besides just this uh, holistic diagnostic data is some actionable steps at the, at the classroom and student level uh, that teachers can um, tap into. The uh, diagnostic side of the platform provides us with the data, but there's also uh, digital uh, lessons that can be custom assigned to students based on need. And part of my uh, work with teachers is providing sort of a roadmap of um, which prerequisite concepts are most critical to a student's success in an upcoming unit of the new curriculum and recommend specific iReady lessons on the instruction side of the platform to assign 
for those students to help narrow uh, or to help us, excuse me, close those uh, gaps and ensure better uh, successful access to the on grade level content. For students who are um, showing more significant gaps, um, we have added two math interventionist positions uh, this fall, um, grant funded, which has uh, been a huge asset for our elementary school community. Um, and we have those interventionists, uh, one uh, working with students from College Cotton Cunningham and the other um, splitting his time between Tucker and Glover and using, uh, as Lauren alluded to, for the reading specialists, they have a new intervention program for reading. We have a new one for math, which shares its name with our elementary curriculum and is called Bridges. Um, and so that is meant to target specific foundational skills that are necessary for students to um, successfully access on grade level content. So a lot of exciting developments at the elementary level. Uh, now, if you don't mind me advancing the slide, I'll talk about the middle and the high school. Um, so again, to reiterate the uh, <clears throat> very clear um, messaging in um, education as it, come, as it pertains to bouncing back from the pandemic um, for math as well as in other uh, subject areas is to make sure that you have a, a rigorous, well-aligned um, high quality curriculum in place. Um, and I'm proud to say that that's um, true at the middle school in the case of Desmos, which I've talked um, on a number of previous occasions about to the committee. Um, this is a sort of enhanced digital version of the illustrative mathematics uh, middle school curriculum, which remains um, the um, best regarded, highest graded, and most well-respected middle school math curriculum. Um, and I think we're in um, even better position to uh, have uh, expanded beyond the paper-based illustrative math curriculum at the middle school to offer um, Desmos and the various uh, blended digital and paper learning experiences uh, that students uh, get to have through that curriculum. Um, we've made um, several refinements just in the past few years to our uh, math support model at Pierce. Um, we call the support class, the general ed support class math uh, investigation. Um, when I started just a few years ago in this position, we had uh, teachers that were um, only teaching that and we recognized a bit of disconnect between what was happening there and what was happening uh, through the daily instruction in their math classroom. Last year, we moved to a model where each teacher had their own section of math investigation and found that to be somewhat cumbersome because it was hard to um, establish consistency and high quality instruction across the board um, with so many teachers uh, involved in providing uh, that support. And so this year, we've sort of merged those two models into what I think now is uh, the best moving forward where we have one teacher at each grade level responsible for the math support classes, but they are also teaching um, at, at least one section of the on grade level uh, standard math class themselves. So they're intimately familiar with the curriculum itself um, and able to not only provide reinforcement of that instruction, but also utilize some of our additional supplemental resources that you see here listed, Delta Math, uh, Maneuvering the Middle, in particular, um, 
as well as STMAP and IXL is reserved um, exclusively for our special education students on IEPs at Pierce as well as at the high school um, to address that unfinished learning and sort of replicate the model that I described with iReady at the elementary school as far as um, identifying what are the most critical prerequisite skills that a student needs to be um, solid in in order to access whatever the upcoming topic or unit is. And again, something I've talked about um, previously, we're continuing to assess the um, use of iReady at the middle school level and whether that's the best way to collect the data that we're interested in um, as far as monitoring the progress of our students uh, as it relates to on grade level standards and not having to wait until they take the MCAS in the spring and we don't get the results until the following um, fall. At the high school, um, we had piloted the illustrative mathematics curriculum I spoke about when I was talking about Pierce in our ninth grade course one last year that has since expanded to uh, our 10th grade course two and the college prep version of course three this year, um, which means that we now have essentially every member of our high school math department involved with that curriculum in some capacity. Um, in many cases across multiple courses and the feedback on that has been um, extremely positive and I think a huge step forward for us at the high school level to have a consistent um, well-aligned curriculum in place. Um, we've also been able to add opportunities for math support that are course specific so a student in course one who needs additional support um, can have um, a teacher, perhaps their own teacher, but even if not, a teacher who's also teaching that course and have students who are only needing that reinforcement and that support within that course as opposed to spread across multiple grade levels or multiple classes. This is in the spirit of what they call it the uh, college level, the co-requisite model, uh, which is in contrast to sort of a remedial approach. Um, we are very excited to announce uh, sort of a, a extended or enhanced partnership with the calculus project, um, having just uh, committed to join the newly established Calc project consortium, which will offer increased opportunities to um, fulfill the mission um, of the calculus project. And, and much like uh, what H described for the ELA department, we have some exciting programmatic changes on the horizon for math as well. The College Board has recently announced that they'll be offering AP pre-calculus for the 23-24 school year, which we intend to offer in place of our current integrated course three accelerated, um, which means it will behoove us to also offer a non-AP honors pre-calculus version of the course as well, along with algebra two, potentially at the honors and uh, CP levels and we're still uh, continuing to kind of plan and look ahead to see what we can do to enhance our program, create more opportunities and pathways for students both to remain on a STEM pathway uh, to potentially pursue um, a, a post-secondary career in a STEM related field as well as to have uh, opportunities for students for whom that is not their post-secondary plan um, <clears throat> create uh, learning experiences that are uh, most appropriate for them. And lastly, um, we uh, have put the uh, dual enrollment opportunity in place this year 
in our honor statistics courses uh, with Quincy College. Um, and I look forward to uh, reporting back to the committee um, how many students and some demographic information about which students uh, are taking advantage of that uh, this year and with the hopes that it will be uh, as successful as I anticipate and have the potential to expand that to other math courses as well as perhaps courses outside of the math department moving forward. So even students who are not enrolling in an AP math class still have the potential to leave Milton High School with uh, three college credits under their belt at a severely uh, discounted cost. So those are all of the math related updates. Thanks for bearing with me. And I believe V, I'm passing the torch on to Karen. I'm sorry, to Garth. Uh, thanks, Brian. Hi, everyone. Good evening. Uh, at the district level, you can see that we've um, used our professional development time um, in a strategic way aligned to our strategic plan using the uh, new late start days as long as well as the full day uh, in service day that we had uh, this fall. Uh, the Instructional Council uh, had a retreat in October and we're working with KnowledgeWorks. They're a national organization uh, working uh, on personalized learning across the country. So we met with them for the day. We had a follow-up meeting in November and we have some ongoing tests that we're working on uh, across the district. Uh, with Lauren Vanacore's uh, leadership, we pulled together a screening team to look at a new screening tool as um, Lexa Rapid is sunsetting this year. So we had one meeting already. We're meeting again next week um, and we'll be continuing to look at a couple of options um, that may service the district um, next year. Uh, in working with DataWise, data um, and as shown in the MCAS results across the state, uh, writing is an area of focus uh, for the district leadership team. Um, we have some tasks from our last meeting with uh, Adam from uh, the Harvard School uh, Graduate School of Education. And we're gonna be observing some writing instruction across the district and sharing observations together as a group. Um, we also used some of the uh, learnings that we had from DataWise and had teachers at the elementary and the high school uh, do more in-depth data analysis and looking at uh, a data uh, through line worksheet and setting goals for the year in terms of reviewing areas of strength from kids from various assessments from last year and areas of growth and um, providing them with collaboration time and direction for this year. And then lastly, um, our tech team with AJ Melanson and Bob Patterson B and um, Brad Spindle, um, they've been working weekly in terms of getting ready to make a transition from Redeker over to PowerSchool, uh, where we hope to have more uh, data and an ecosystem that'll both inform parents, uh, students and teachers around their progress um, both in academics, but also uh, their social and emotional growth as well. So right. now I do think I'm turning it over to Karen or V's back, sorry. Um, I'm back just for a little bit and then I'll pass it on to Karen. Um, but yeah, thank you for making that connection to uh, social, emotional, 
um, learning data. We definitely want to have a system that could uh, keep uh, teachers, staff, and families informed of students' progress in the district. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about the IntelliSpark survey. So as you all know, um, the district has collaborated with IntelliSpark over the past couple of years to really collect some um, SEL student voice data. And the IntelliSpark surveys are all aligned with um, the CASEL framework for SEL learning. Um, and it measures the core CASEL competencies, self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, decision-making, and relationship skills. Um, the thing that we have to remember about these surveys are they're quick dipsticks. They're not meant to be used for high-stake decision-making. So they um, are collected at the individual student level and then triangulated with other data in, um, in the context of a, a student support team meeting um, to make sure that you know, we're addressing um, all potential gaps that uh, a student might have. Um, so we, with this data, with the IntelliSpark survey, we plan to do two rounds this year. So we just finished the first one um, last month, and then we're planning on doing another round potentially in the spring in March. Um, and I'm gonna talk to you about the data for grades two to 12 that are captured in the fall survey in the next few slides. Um, but before that, also wanted to mention that, you know, as with iReady and as with Lexia Rapid, we will also be um, evaluating the use of IntelliSpark surveys. So, you know, as we um, progress along in the year, sometimes there are new um, data sources that pop up. So, for example, um, at the last meeting, at the, the metrics meeting, Karen and I mentioned that uh, we went to a, a state training on the vocal, the state vocal um, uh, school and student uh, um, climate and learning survey data. So that is something that we definitely want to examine further because that is a standardized source of data, not only for our district, but you know we can make comparison to other district and to the state. So that's another data source that we definitely want to consider using in the coming years. Um, so, and, you know, and also the power school system that Garth just mentioned, it also comes with its own built-in SEL assessments. So that is something that we will also be exploring um, in the next year or so and kind of weigh our decision on what is the best uh, source of data, what is the best tool to use um, to collect uh, information on our students that is um, not only informative but actionable um, for teachers and for students and for families as well okay so i'm gonna so this is what the fall intellispark data look like um, broken down by the different castle the five core castle categories that i just mentioned um, and the green is you know where students so these surveys are, of course, self-reported, um, and that is the, the nature of kind of SEL data collection. A lot of them are self-reported um, survey tools. Um, so we take this as a source of data, but we also make sure that we triangulate this with other sources of data to kind of confirm um, what the data is telling us. Um, so 
if you look across the four elementary schools on this slide, you see a very similar pattern um, across the four schools in how students are responding. And the relationship skills is the domain where we see a lot more room for growth from the students. Um, and this is something that you know, all our teachers are aware of and they are focusing on building um, effective, good relationships with students and families to support learning. And this slide is giving you kind of the, the data for Pierce and Milton High and the category that's circled here that has the most room for growth. Um, as you see here is self-management. And this is very much in line with data that we've seen in past year, but also in line with kind of national data that is um, showing us, you know, that a lot of students are uh, going off to college without um, the sufficient self-management skills for them to succeed. So even though they might be um, very successful academically at the high school level um, with all the structures that are in place for them. So they're going to the classes, they have their families at home supporting them, they have teachers um, kind of monitoring data and making sure that uh, support is provided um, when needed. When those students are off on their own in college, um, research has shown that you know, students might not be so good at managing their time, managing what they do, how they make decision. And that is uh, definitely an area nationally for everybody to be paying attention to, to make sure that we're building up those skills at the high school level so that our students are ready for, for college and for life too. So now I'm gonna turn this over to Karen, who gave us uh, a very comprehensive presentation last week with, along with Jenny Bellevue. So Karen, I'm sorry that we have to bring you back again, but we just cannot miss your voice from, from this SEL discussion. <laughs> um, no, I'm happy to, I'm happy to speak to it always. I love talking about this. This is my, my jam. Um, however, I would say that I'm going to do an insufficient job as compared to last week. So if you do have in-depth questions about um, our work around safe and supportive schools, I would say start with the presentation that Jenny and I gave um, in the Safe and Supportive Schools Forum last week. It is recorded and is on um, the website and, and all that good stuff. Um, but I'm also here to, to answer any questions that the school committee might have um, about that work. Um, and just as a brief overview, uh, we're doing some really great work. We have SEL leads in each school. There's two leads in each school, so 12 total leads. They are um, stipended um, to help coordinate all of our efforts. Um, so basically we're providing PD and then we have boots on the ground uh, that are helping us push that PD along and actually drive it into implementation um, and then monitor its um, its use and its effectiveness. So um, the leads work with our district SEL advisory team, which is an amazing 
group of individuals, um, multidisciplinary across all different domains and, and roles uh, within the district. Um, and then we also work very closely with uh, student support teams and behavioral health support teams that are in place in each building to kind of look at data, triangulate it, review it, and um, come up with plans to support each individual student, both from an academic perspective and also from a social, emotional, and behavioral health perspective. Um, super excited. We just rolled out the new second step SEL curriculum. We were um, back in 2011 and we're now uh, solidly in 2022 um, using the new version. Teachers are really excited about it. They've already um, started exploring. Everything is, is, is digital now. Everything's very interactive. Um, and if uh, you know anything about Second Step, you know that um, once upon a time they were um, black and white cards that I remember as a teacher holding up and scripting and walking through scenarios, and it's wonderful. Uh, but the new the new curriculum is is much more enhanced and engaging. Um, and that's just a, you know some of the things we're doing. We're rolling out Calm Classroom across the district thanks to an MFE grant. Um, and that's super exciting. And then we're providing some really intentional PD around trauma-sensitive practices um, and also vicarious trauma and self-care, um, which we know is, is super important. And I think one of the things that I tried to really emphasize is that SEL um, is, it's a foundation, right? It's not taking anything away from the academics, which are the priority, which is why I think everyone led with that. Um, this is this is a necessary foundation. Students can't learn if they don't feel safe and supported. Um, but it is a foundation, right? It's 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 sort of at the root of everything we do, and it is about how we interact with kids. It's about how we teach. It's about teaching with a trauma informed lens. And ultimately, I, I like to tell people, it's about making sure kids feel connected and a sense of belonging. Um, and feel safe, seen and safe and, and valued and heard. Um, and if we can accomplish that through all of the efforts of all of the educators and the SEL leads and everybody else, um, then we position our kids to be ready to do the very best learning that they can do um, and to achieve at, at, at their highest level. So um, I, again, I encourage you to take a peek at that uh, presentation last week because it goes into much more detail, but Happy to answer any questions about the SEL world. So at this point, I think we're just gonna open up to any questions from school committee or. Great, thank you so much. Wonderful presentation. Uh, let's start by seeing uh, Amber Ross Denny. Well, first, I want to thank you all for taking the time to share this data in such great detail, as well as talk about what you're going to do about it. I think half the battle in building the confidence of our community is realizing that we know our data, we know our strengths and our areas for growth, and that we are planning for that. Um, we covered a lot of, of, of ground, so I'm going to apologize in advance because I have questions from each group, but I'm going to start and then stop so my other colleagues can ask without me going on forever because this is my jam. I love this these types of conversations. So my first questions are related to Lexi Rapid. And specifically, at the time of year that that assessment is administered, is the expectation that the student only knows a portion of the content 
or is it what is expected of them to know by the end of the school year and there's a, 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 a level of performance that you expect? Um, I can take that. Um, so Lexia Rapid, it's a screening assessment. So meaning that we're using it to kind of as a tool that's predictive of students' acquisition of reading skills. Um, so it's the company has its testing windows um, that it has created um, and we make sure that our administration falls within those windows. Um, we tend to do it um, towards the beginning of the window of each um, administration period. Um, but I, when we look at like percentile ranks, we're thinking about um, where our students are falling against other students. The performance score is another source of data we get from that. And that's a score that regardless of the time that we administer it, we can be using to track growth. Um, so we get a few different types of scores and types of data from it that we can use um, that happens regardless of exactly when within that testing window we administer it. Um, and again, it's really just our, I don't want to say just, it's a screening tool. So it's, we're using it to kind of identify who are students that might need extra support in that area. That's perfect. That so it sounds like it, it, it aligns with what they are expected to know at the time it's administered. That's safe exactly. So yes. then it begs the question, if whether or not reach for reading is aligned with the standards or aligned and ultimately aligned to that test. Um, I know that reach for reading was deployed pre-pandemic, but mm -hmm. I don't remember what the MCAS scores look like to say that, you know, students um, were learning at a proficient, at a, a reasonable number of students were learning at proficiency with reach for reading um, relative to now, because if, if there is an alignment issue that we're seeing, it's, it's much easier to address that um, from the perspective of there's so many interventions that you've listed there, which um, it sounds like they're reflecting the different needs of our students. But if the curriculum itself isn't aligned, um, that would be a challenge. Could you speak to the alignment piece? Sure. Um, it's so when we adopted Reach for Reading and Superintendent Sheehan um, might know the exact year better than me because it happened under her leadership. Um, so she might be able to speak more to kind of how our Four MCAS scores were looking years. at the time. That was at the beginning of my time in Milton. Um, and I think it might be a little tricky to think about the alignment of, you know, how well, how our MCAS scores reflect our instruction using Reach for Reading in the sense of we had a couple years of implementation that I think then we kind of hit pandemic years, which makes it really tricky to use those MCAS scores to assess our implementation of the Reach for Reading curriculum. Um, it's definitely, you're right, that we can have all the interventions in the world, but if our core curriculum isn't sufficient, um, it, you know, we're doing a disservice to our students. So that's a great question of something that we do need to be considerate of. Okay. And in between the formative assessments, is there any way to gauge district-wide how students are doing relative to our interventions? Yes. Um, so our reading specialists who are implementing many of the reading, the interventions that I listed um, at every grade level, they're using progress monitoring tools. Um, they've worked as a team, our elementary reading specialists, to um, identify. They use Dibbles 8 um, edition as their progress monitoring tool. So they're able to, you know, and it's, so that's a research-based 
um, a progress monitoring assessment tool that's independent of any curriculum that we're using, um, and it's a curriculum-based measure. And it, um, so they use that to progress monitor. Um, we also have sometimes used EZCBM, which is another tool that also comes out of the University of Oregon. Um, and then our reading specialists at the middle school level, the READ 180 program has a tremendous amount of data um, that gets pulled and there's the data dashboard that assesses progress with, um, there it's assessing the progress on like individual reading skills that the students are working on. Um, so we get a lot of data that way. We also gather a lot of data through Lexia Core 5, which is that adaptive learning platform. Um, as students use that, the program provides teachers with a tremendous amount of data about which skills students are working on in the program, if there are skills that they're struggling to make progress in, um, and if there are other areas of instruction that they would benefit from in the classroom. So outside of the tools that do exist within Reach for Reading for progress monitoring, we also use some of those tools. And this will be my last ELA question, then I'm gonna pass the mic. Um, welcome, Mr. Hardy. Um, your predecessor had shared that there were, there were concerns about grade level calibration in writing. And I wonder whether or not any of your plans for this school year incorporate um, getting some common expectations in terms of what, what our district says relative to the standards constitutes good writing. Sure, I, I can certainly say that, that that is a big concern of, that I have also. Um, and I, as I said, what we're looking at for next year is, is what can we do in terms of common assessments at the, at the level of all the different skills that you have in English and writing would definitely be one of those. Will there be one this year? I, I, I can, I'm gonna say there won't be on meeting at department levels and we are talking about what assessments we are giving in writing at each level. Uh, and we're working at the revision piece, but a more universal one would be something that we'd be looking at rolling out for next year. Thank you both. Thank you. Member Varghese. Hi, um, I just wanna say thank you so much for this presentation. I know when we met back in September, I had a lot of questions about, gosh, how are we gonna get this done? So I'm really amazed and impressed by the amount of work that has been done the last couple of months to make all this happen. So this, I am really excited about, and I'm really looking forward to, you know, it getting implemented in the, you know, the next couple of months and over the next year, and then really trying to see, you know, look, looking forward to seeing the results in the spring. A um, couple of questions I did have, though, I think it was on slide five. I was just taking notes. Um, we're looking at the iReady data. And uh, B, if you, if you don't mind pulling it up, just so we're all on the same page, um, do you mind sharing your screen again, B? Thank you. Per Okay, sorry, thank you. So I had a question about this. Um, I was looking at the middle school, um, for instance, and if you have your um, grade six um, at fall 21-22, they're at 6% for a three grades level be below. And then when they get into grade seven, we're looking at, you know, I'm guessing they would, you know, ideally be in um, year 22-23. And they're down 
um, for three grade levels be below. And I was wondering if you had any insight just looking at the patterns and trends in the data, like if you had any insight and, you know, uh, Brian, feel free to jump in as well. I'd love to get some, um, what your takeaway from that is. Is it just because of the gap from the summer um, or is it, you know, like I'd love, you know, is it because, you know, if we're testing in September, for instance, is it because of that? Uh, would love some um, thoughts around that. Absolutely. I'm so glad you drew um, our attention back to that. Um, so I don't consider that to be a valid data point. I hope it doesn't sound to anyone like I'm trying to ignore a problem, but I, I there's nothing in any other data we collect, including MCAS and curriculum embedded assessment to suggest that our current seventh graders are twice as far or twice, the you know, twice percentage wise behind at the beginning of this year than they were at the beginning of last year. Um, and so when I talk about sort of the, the, the reliability of iReady for us as a district moving forward, I'm, I'm looking particularly at the middle school level and whether in fact, and B alluded to this earlier and I'm not sure everybody caught it, but we're kind of eagerly awaiting um, iReady to release their most recent report to show uh, a um, alignment and that's not the word I'm looking for, but but a correlation, there it is, okay. between the more recent MCAS uh, data and the more recent iReady data. And if that correlation continues to exist the way it did pre-pandemic, then um, that will have to factor heavily into our decision uh, to move forward and continue to use iReady at the middle school level. Um, but unfortunately, um, some of this is anecdotal. Um, this is a diagnostic experience that is a little bit harder to get buy-in from middle school age students than it is from elementary age students. And part of that is just the confine of administering it during a math class period, where at the elementary school, there's just some more flexibility in scheduling. So you can have a student work on the diagnostic for sort of a, a 30, 20, 30 minute period of time in the day that's sort of, um, not that it's unstructured, but it's sort of more fluid, more flexible. Um, okay. And so... Um, on paper, that looks like something that we should be overly, very heavily concerned about, but the reality is that that's not um, consistent with any of the other data that we're seeing, um, particularly in our current seventh or our current eighth graders. Okay, no, that's great, and I appreciate the clarification. And then, um, so I know we talked about, you know, looking at the fall, like, um, the fall, and then will we be testing them at the end of the year to see if they've actually caught up, you know, like close those gaps before okay. before the next fall? Okay. Yeah, so we administer, so uh, with iReady, we have administered it three times um, each year. Uh, okay. We're going to do that again this year at the elementary level. In fact, we're gonna be opening the winter window right after the holiday break. Um, okay. I think somewhat, um, connected to the comments I was just making, uh, we found in the past, it's really only been last year, our winter iReady data at the middle school level was not particularly useful and okay. was very disruptive to instructional time. So okay. we're gonna actually wait and only administer iReady at the middle school level one more time. And we're okay. gonna do that before we get to MCAS because the other thing that happened when we did it in the middle of the year we had to wait until the end of the year for that third administration. And by that point, students had all gone through uh, math 
and ELA, and in the case of eighth graders, science, MCAS as well. And so we really felt like it was hard to capture accurately what they knew at that point in time, which was sort of by that stage, like late May, early June. So uh, we try, we're trying to be more intentional about getting more valid, accurate data, but we also do want to make sure we see uh, an appropriate level of growth from the beginning to the later portion of the year. So we're looking at a window sometime in that late March, early April timeframe. Okay, great. Um, my next question, actually, unfortunately, all, all my questions are for you, so I apologize. <laughs> I apologize. Oh, no, no um, but but um, so I did, you had mentioned that we added two math interventionists this fall. How does that break down across the schools? I know you mentioned two at Cunningham, one at Cunningham and Collicott, and then one that supports Tucker and Glover. Like, how do they break, like, how does their schedule work? Where How can they accommodate all these students that need interventions? They can't. Um, we're definitely having to turn students in need away. Um, okay. And some of it is a matter of fitting uh, logistically, um, particularly where uh, we have one traveling between two schools that are on different locations. Um, so, um, I mean, he, he does everything he can to maximize the opportunity to work with students. And that includes on um, at least Fridays going from Tucker to Glover, back to Tucker, and then back to Glover again, all on the same day and um, eating in the car. Um, but the reality is that the need right now exceeds the, the, the demand exceeds the supply. Um, and so uh, what we did to identify students um, to qualify for the intervention is rely on um, some of this data that we're looking at here, the fall iReady, uh, corroborated against um, the uh, spring iReady data that we had, as well as MCAS, and we wanted um, teachers to have a voice in that as well, and, and the observations that they had to that point in the school year. But the list of students that um, would benefit from this intervention, I'll say it more strongly, that need this intervention, exceed what two people right now can do, and their, their caseloads are significantly higher than their colleagues who are reading specialists in part for that reason and in part okay. because we obviously have a lot of students who who do need that um, okay. more targeted and specific support in math so great um great thank you so much for explaining that because i think i think that's really important for me to know it's like it's like you know it's great that we have two but I, you know i really wanted clarification on how how they kind of scheduled their time among the four schools. So that's great, thank you. Um, my next question is about the calculus project. I only have a middle schooler and an, um, a student, I mean, a daughter in elementary school, so I am very new to this. Um, it seems like it's uh, the calculus project. It seems like it's a great program and I love initiatives like this that really pu push kids academically and I wanna see things like this expand because I am all for it. Um, but I would love to know more about it since I'm kind of coming in, you know, without having any experience about it. And I wanted to know what is the criteria of being admitted into the calculus project? Sure, I'm happy to speak to that. So just for those who aren't aware, the mission of the calculus project is to increase the number of um, African American and Latinx students who enroll and succeed in advanced math courses at Milton High School. Okay. Um, hopefully culminating in a calculus course their senior year. And that's where, <clears throat> pardon me, the program gets its name. Um, the way the um, 
The way the program currently operates is students are identified uh, at the end of seventh grade mm -hmm. and invited to participate in our summer program uh, leading into eighth grade. So uh, students are identified based on meeting the demographic criterion um, as well as based upon um, the input from teachers um, in terms of whether uh, they've shown a level of proficiency to be on a trajectory to um, succeed in meeting that mission of uh, matriculating through advanced level coursework uh, by the time they get to high school. Um, and with that said, um, although that's the mission, it is very important to note that um, no students are turned away from being members of the calculus project. So it's not an exclusive um, membership but we tried to stay true to its mission. And um, once students um, are in, and um, so I hope that was clear. Uh, once students are um, become members, are invited to join the calculus project uh, after their seventh grade year, um, they participate in, are invited to participate in um, a summer program, uh, which is a basically three weeks of, um, well, it serves several purposes. One is to um, sort of uh, build some community among the membership um, to preview content um, for the upcoming school year. Research has shown that that um, builds student confidence and um, helps them to uh, feel successful uh, and increase their chances of a high level of engagement and participation and proficiency in um, their math class uh, they'll be enrolling in or taking in the fall. And we run that program for students uh, entering eighth grade all the way up through entering 12th grade. And then during the school year, there are uh, opportunities to receive tutoring um, as well uh, to support their uh, academic success during the school year for the math class they're enrolled in. So um, does that give you some insight? That does. Um, I, yeah, I was just trying to like read up on it a little bit. And, you know, like I think when I went on the calculus project, it mentioned that, you know, it's includes people of color and low-income students as well. Um, is that something that you also look at? Yes. Thank okay, you for great. clarifying. Thank, thank you, Member Varghese. I'm going to let people move on. We have a, a line of people okay. with their hands awesome. up. <laughs> thank thank you. you. Thank you for all your good questions. Um, and I see uh, Superintendent Sheehan's hand has been up for a little while. So just, uh, just, yeah. just a quick comment. I wanted to, um, to um, let Member Varghese know that you will see an additional math interventionist in the um, budget uh, presentation this evening. So I, I just wanted to let everyone know that we we wanted to recommend another math interventionist. That, Wonderful. That was all Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Member White, you're up. Thank you. Um, I just had a question about the, um, the fall um, testing that was done. And certainly I know from working in schools for years that students come back from summer break and have had some slippage um, or have, you know, lost some knowledge when they, that they're often that all classroom teachers will look at, you know, where their students are and what they need to review and what they where they need to start up again. I just was wondering, is there can you see some differences in the data that is more indicative of the learning loss from COVID versus um, more, I don't know, I don't wanna say typical, but more expected slippage that occurs um, in at, at other times before COVID. 
Um, yeah, I can speak to that for a little bit. Um, I think at this point where we are in the education landscape, it is kind of hard to disentangle what is COVID related versus mm -hmm. what is considered normal summer slippage as you alluded to, Miss uh, um, White. Um, I think there is still going to be uh, research in the coming years to quantify uh, the exact, you know, um, amount of learning loss that happened due to COVID. And I think we'll see like more of that research coming out. But in the meantime, we're still continuing on and we receive the students um, where they are in the fall. And, you know, as the curriculum directors have been talking to you about, then we examine their data um, at that point and then determine what's the next best step for them as individual learners. Um, so, you know, uh, from a system level, like can we really disentangle COVID from just regular summer slide? I think it's really hard to, to be able to tease mm -hmm. that out. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Carroll. Thanks. Um, I know this has been going on for a long time. I have um, a, two qu quick um, follow-up questions for Brian and then just a couple of observations to share. Um, I guess first, I just wanted to um, sort of emphasize a topic that uh, Beverly was asking about and that I think presents an opportunity for us to kind of continue exploring or learning about. Um, I know I would like to understand more about it and that is um, the alignment around our elementary ELA curriculum. Um, so, you know, Lauren, I heard you say there's sort of um, things we might want to explore there. So I just like to express that I'm interested in um, sort of learning more about that and having that conversation um, seems important just as we approach, you know, the time when we would typically be reviewing that curriculum on the cycle anyway, um, and especially in light of, you know, these past few years and the data that we're presented with. Um, the other um, quick observation I wanted to share is really to the point, um, Superintendent Sheehan, that you just made around connecting to the budget. And I'm looking forward to, you know, beginning the process of um, learning about the budget. I don't sit on the finance subcommittee, so I'm eager to kind of get caught up to speed on um, how that's shaping up. Uh, but I, I did sort of hear repeatedly throughout the presentation, the reminders that so many of these important interventions are grant funded. Um, I think in Milton, we've made really, really smart and strategic use of the, the resources that became available to us over the past um, couple of years. But I, I think it is so important that we stay focused on sustaining these important interventions since we can all see the, um, you know, the, the needs are going to be sticking with us um, and, and we need to stay committed. So uh, that was just something that I was thinking about really on every topic that uh, was touched upon in the presentation. Um, as far as um, just a couple of quick questions, um, you know, Brian, when you were sharing 
about the um, the elementary math assessment data and kind of where we are with that. Um, I, ha I have to say, I you know, through having been on, served on school committee through last year and watching the process of selecting the new math curriculum, which you know, I, I felt like I had a lot of confidence in that process in terms of you know how you determined what was the best curriculum for us to invest in. I wasn't here um, during the similar process for the ELA curriculum, so I'm not trying to say I know anything about you know um, the different options that were available, the reasons for choosing the cur curriculum we currently have. Um, but I just can't. I don't have like the personal experience of confidence in that process. Um, so I think as I was hearing the assessment, I was feeling, I see, you know, I have two elementary students that um, I see the math work that they're doing and I see a difference, particularly for my third grader between what she's doing now versus the last few years. And it's a marked difference that I've seen. Um, all that's just to wonder, I guess my question is to do with the, the rollout of the curriculum, because I know that um, previously you shared, you know, your plans around how that's going. And so my, my simple question on that was just how is it going? Um, have you been able to get feedback from the principals and teachers that give you confidence in the implementation of the curriculum as another important like resource and support in this effort to um, help our students improve in math? How's that? How's the rollout going? Yeah, thanks, Dr. Carroll. Um, I would say that it's going very well, and I would also say that it's really hard to implement a new curriculum, um, especially in the first year. And so I think it would be disingenuous to say like, nobody's having any struggles and they all feel like they're just cruising along from day one. In fact, if that were the feedback I was getting, I'd be worried we picked a curriculum that was too similar to our previous one or too easy to implement that it does, didn't really challenge student learning in a way that was different or that that forced teachers to adjust some of their pedagogy around uh, the new curriculum that we were implementing. Um, and from my own experience in the classroom, I know that when you're teaching something for the first time, you're seeing it in silos and you need the experience of going through it um, once for the full year to, to help make the type of connections that it's designed for teachers to be able to make. Um, so with that said, it's, a, it's I think, a good, um, helps explain that the, the primary feedback that we've gotten is that they want as much PD as they can get their hands on. They want to get as much um, really detailed and thorough um, coaching and training for the new curriculum as possible. And it's, it's from that feedback that, um, I decided to kind of shoot for the moon a little bit with this grant application that was submitted before the Thanksgiving holiday. And, and hopefully that will come through. I know that it's um, ironic because you were just talking sort of about our dependence on grant funding for positions and other things like that. Um, but the reality is that in, that in, in um, you know, with curriculum implementation, the, the opportunity for professional development is, um, can be cost prohibitive. And so, um, if that if that funding doesn't come through for us, um, we'll have to decide as a leadership team whether we try to find it within our budget to provide it. But I think that I can speak on behalf of the principals and the teachers to say um, that they feel like they need as 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 much 
quantity and quality of training as possible to acclimate uh, appropriately. I hope that doesn't come off as negative because with that has also been, I think, an overwhelming enthusiasm um, at kindergarten with the bridges and in the uh, other grade levels with into math about having something new about about reporting as you have as uh, as a parent uh, about a market difference in terms of the quality and the rigor and the and the um, and the design of those materials. So um, I feel. Um, validation of the process that we've landed where we have and that we have uh, these um, programs now in place and we have a responsibility to the teachers to one acknowledge that we put them in the position of doing something very difficult and figure out any and every way possible to support that uh, so that it translates into the best learning experience for our elementary students. Thanks. I mean, I, I appreciate your candor on that. Um, and I think it's just important for all of us to keep in mind the, um, we can have the most like world-class curriculum on every subject. It needs to be implemented with fidelity as the jargon goes, you know, it needs to be implemented well uh, to have the impact that is intended to have and that's the investment to see the return on our investment we need the implementation to be supported so i i appreciate your candor on that i think that's important for us to continue um to consider um i, I only have to just add i'm sorry dr carroll i'm the last person who should speak about the process for selecting and implementing the reach for reading curriculum it's outside of my area of expertise and i wasn't working in milton when it happened but I do think because it seems like a very um, uh, topic of interest and it's come up a few times tonight to note that um, a lot of the process that we followed for the math um, selection was mirrored after what the committee that selected Reach for Reading uh, underwent uh, a few years back. And what we were doing as I shared with the committee also aligned to what um, Desi had um, been providing as far as a, a was considered to be an appropriate process. So not really within my jurisdiction, but I, I do want to make sure that it's clear, um, at least from my vantage point, that the process that uh, we went through seemed in many ways to mirror uh, the one that led to the ELA selection, whenever that was a few years ago. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, and I do, I see Superintendent Sheehan has her hand up. I won't take more time with um, additional questions, but I did before I stop, I did wanna just say, Mr. Hardy, I appreciated hearing the updates from the high school as well. Um, that sounds really exciting around the senior electives. And um, I I don't, I, you may know, I used to be a high school English teacher and you had me uh, just thinking fondly and with excitement about the great stuff that happens when students are feeling really connected to their content in an English classroom. Um, so thanks for sharing those updates too. Welcome, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Carroll. Uh, Superintendent Sheehan. Oh, I, I just wanted to let um, Dr. Carroll know that I would be more than happy to bring you up to date on, on our curriculum review process um, for selecting the curriculum. and. This is now, you know, it's been more than a few years that that curriculum has been implemented. Um, Ms. McDavid was on our, 
our team, um, and I think um, Ms. Vanacoy, you also were also on, on that team. We had a team of 20 plus people. Um, we worked with Dr. Noni Lasseau from the um, uh, Harvard School of Education, leading us in, um, in the curriculum review. And um, it was um, actually, I would, we could easily say that the um, the process was more comprehensive than the um, Ed, Re Ed reports um, curriculum review that's that's suggested by Desi. So um, it was a very very interesting process. But I'd I'd be happy to share with you our implementation plan and curriculum review, and I look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you, Superintendent Chi. Um, and I just want to thank you all for coming tonight and sharing um, all this uh, information. And um, I just um, am just so impressed with the thoughtfulness that has gone into both looking at the data, but then looking at what we're doing and how we need to switch things up if it doesn't look like we're we're you know hitting hitting things properly or um, how we can do things better. And, and I remember very well when Alexia uh, Rapid and I ready came on the scene and I thought, wow, that's a fabulous, fabulous opportunity for us to really find out how kids are doing. And now we're talking about the next generation of, of those, those um, types of screeners. And, and it's great that, that you all are, are just keeping up with um, what's going on and, uh, bringing the district forward and and um, and hopefully um, helping us all to uh, help our students succeed. So thank you so much for your presentation. Um, I say good night. <laughs> uh, Superintendent Sheehan, do you have any more uh, district updates on your? List? I do. Excuse me, I, I had to step out for a minute. Sure. Um, yes, I, I have some updates. Um, okay. Thank you, Chair Rosemary. Mm -hmm. I, I first want to uh, congratulate our Milton High School football team and coach for qualifying for the state championship game. It was uh, quite a thrill, um, certainly, to be viewing that um, that game and cheering cheering the team on from from Gillette, and um, it certainly was a thrill for the team as well. So um, again, congratulations to all. Um, a reminder for parents and guardians that tomorrow, December 8th, will be an early release day for all of our pre-K to 12 students. It is a professional development day for secondary teachers and for the elementary schools, it is a parent-teacher conference day. Um, We're very excited um, about uh, a visit from the um, NEASC or New England uh, Association of Schools and Colleges. Um, they will be visiting the uh, uh, visiting Milton High School next week, uh, the week of December 12th. Um, representatives um, will be meeting with administrators, teachers, and students, and they will be visiting classrooms to observe student-centered learning. Um, NEASC assists schools in navigating accreditation and they provide a process for meaningful and ongoing whole school improvement and growth. Um, we'd like to remind uh, families that on December 13th, um, we will have our uh, Pierce grade six 
um, perform in their winter concert at 6.30 p.m. This will be held at the Milton High School Auditorium. Also, um, on the evening of December 13th, there will be a virtual forum for the Milton Public School Elementary community. Um, Jeff Parati and Landon Callahan from the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education Safe Schools Program for LGBTQ plus students will be facilitating this interactive session um, from 6.30 to 8 p.m. Um, additional information is posted on the website. On December 14th, um, there is another Pierce concert for grades seven and eight, and that will also be held at the Milton High School Auditorium at from 6 to 7.30 p.m. Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry, just 6.30 p.m. I'm not sure of the ending time. And um, on December 15th, um, the Milton High School eighth grade information night will take place from 6 to 7.30 p.m., again in the Milton High School Auditorium. And then we have the Milton High School Cabaret on December 20th um, in the auditorium as well. Um, on December 20th, we are very excited to be hosting a luncheon for our Milton Public School retirees in the Milton High School Library. And this has been a longstanding tradition that has not taken place over the past couple of years due to COVID. So we're looking forward to welcoming back some of our old friends. We do have some other important dates coming up in January, um, such as our preschool information night and the preschool pre-registration. Um, the preschool lottery will take place in January, um, as well as our kindergarten information night and kindergarten pre-registration. So. Uh, please, uh, we ask families to please watch for more details about these events um, in the blog, in your school newsletters, or on our website. Thank you. Very good. Thank you, Superintendent Sheen. Um, so next on our agenda, we have Citizen Speak. Uh, we set aside uh, up to 15 minutes, and we welcome people to come share their thoughts um, and um, we have uh, three minutes per person. So if you are interested in uh, speaking tonight or sharing your thoughts, please raise your hand and we will promote you uh, to uh, share your thoughts with us. Um, there is a, a hand raised for someone named Bonnie, which I'm gonna put on. Okay, terrific, thank you. If you unmute yourself, please. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Okay. Can you guys see me? No. <laughs> oh, okay. Is the camera an option or? Um, no, I think it's just for a, a sound. Okay. Okay. Um, I also I wanted to spend, can you, you can hear me though? Yes. Okay. My question mainly focuses on the ELA curriculum as well. Um, and I wanted to make an, a specific observation on the eighth grade for ELA because 53%, according to the MCAS scores, 53% of students did not meet or exceed. So that's more than half for the students in ELA for the eighth graders. And if we look at the reading curriculums that the eighth graders had used starting in kindergarten, 
um, 2014 is when they would have been kindergartners. So 2014 through 2017, they were using the Lucy Calkins units of study, the read-write workshop, and this, as well as Qantas and Pinnell uh, in combination. And this was under Mary Garmley. This curriculum has come under extreme scrutiny and the AM, A, APM reports um, says that it has failed an extreme number of students and Milton eventually discontinued using that curriculum. But those eighth graders had that curriculum for three years. That curriculum was replaced and then 2018 through 2022 Reach for Reading was used, um, and the district has spent $423,000 on Reach for Reading over the last couple of years. Um, when you look at DESE's website, it says some popular curriculum materials that do not meet expectations for quality on ed reports and curate include the following, Fontes and Pinnell, Holt Journeys, Reach for Reading, Reading Street, Units of Study, which is the Lucy Calkins program, and Wonders. That's seven curriculums, and three of those curriculums Milton has used. And so I know there was a 20-person committee involved in selecting the curriculum, but Desi goes on to say, schools and districts currently using any of these materials would receive priority for a grant in order to support replacing these low quality materials. So Excuse these- Excuse me, you have, you have 10 more seconds, if you could wrap up, please. Yeah, so these, there's three of the curriculums that Milton has used is on this list of seven that Desi is saying is low quality. So someone's right and someone's wrong. And I just wanna make sure the school committee is focused on this because the administrator, it's either the administrators for Milton are right or Desi is wrong in this place because this is in black and white on their website. And Milton applied for the grant to replace Reach for Reading. They were denied at the time. This was two years ago and the scores weren't bad enough. But I bet now if we presented the scores, it might be a different story. But I hope Thank you all very, of you Thank you very much. We have, we have someone else with their hand raised. If we could move on. Thank you very much. And if you, if there are other things that you'd want to uh, say to us, please feel free to put it in writing. Well, could Bonnie identify herself for the minutes? Oh, Bonnie Bay, uh, Pleasant Street. I have a child in middle in Pierce and in Pyramid. Terrific. Thank you, Bonnie. Um, Next is Colleen McCarthy. Great. Hi, everyone. Can you hear me? Hi, Colleen. Yes. Hi. Hi, Colleen McCarthy, Gulliver Street, um, three children in Cunningham. I just I just wanted to make a comment. <laughs> I, I, I just get the sense that we feel, I, it just appears that we are more reactionary than proactive. And when I hear that our demand for teachers is exceeding our supply, that's economics. And <laughs> what worries me is, you know, we have teachers that are running around and that's burnout. And I apparently it sounds like they've been doing that for a year. So I just ask that we forecast a little bit better moving forward so that we don't run into these issues. Um, that's all, thank you. Thank you, Colleen. Is there anyone else who- There are no other hands raised. Okay. 
very good then. And I think we will move along. Thank you all very much. Um, next on the agenda is chair's report um, and a superintendent search update. Um, and I just have a brief update for you. Uh, the superintendent screening committee has been busy at work. Um, there are 11 members of the uh, screening committee. We have received um, uh, 19 applications uh, from candidates who are interested in becoming our, our next superintendent. And I, I have to say, I'm very pleased with the quality, the caliber of the applicants, a very impressive group, which is very exciting um, to, to see. Um, we um, uh, just met uh, yesterday and we have um, identified semifinalists who will be coming in to be interviewed um, this, this coming week. And the um, screening committee will uh, return to uh, school committee at our next meeting with a recommendation, we're hoping of three finalists out of the group of um, candidates that we're interviewing. So it's, it's moving right along. Um, we've had a, a great interest from a very, very uh, qualified group of applicants and we're looking forward to bringing forward the finalists to the school committee um, in a couple of weeks. Any questions on that before we move on? Um, okay, next on our agenda is finance subcommittee. Uh, Member White. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to take things a little bit out of order so we can get some business done first before we get into discussing the budget, which is the priority for tonight. But I was wondering if we could um, approve the two vendor warrants, uh, vendor warrant number 20 dated December 1st in the amount of $380,217.66 and vendor warrant number 21 dated December 8th, 2022, in the amount of $447,679.33. May I have a second on those, that? I second. Okay, so we're gonna do a roll call vote. Okay, um, member Ross Denny? Yes. Uh, Chair Rosemarin? Yes. Dr. Carroll? Yes. Member Varghese? Yes. Member White? Yes. Okay. Thank you very much. I also want to let you know that I did reach out to um, the Warrant Committee. I spoke, I emailed and spoke to Dave Humphreys, uh, who's the chair this year, and he connected me with Emily Cavalier, who's going to be the um, head of the school subcommittee on the Warrant Committee. They haven't assigned the um, subcommittee completely yet, but I did tell Emily that when finance was meeting and that she was, and there, anyone was welcome to attend and that we're gonna be um, keeping her posted on our thought, our discussion and our votes. And uh, I did notice that yesterday at Warrant, at the, uh, excuse me, yesterday when the finance committee met, um, two members of the Warrant Committee were in attendance listening into our discussion. Okay, so basically, the work, the uh, finance committee has been very busy. We've been, we've met with uh, department heads, principals, and administration to discuss B 
beyond the rollover budget, what are the priorities for this coming year? Um, and as I'm preaching to the choir here, as the school committee knows and the administration knows that most of our requests are being um, are met because of our increasing enrollment and numbers of students that we're we're working with as well as the students needs. And so even just to give you a snapshot um, with the special ed budget, some of the requests that um, Sue Maselli has made are actually things that she's had to implement already so that some of the requests are have already had to be hired because of students moving into the district. So one of her requests, for example, was a Glover school teacher. She's already had to hire that person and they've had to hire six additional special ed paraprofessionals to meet the needs of our students. So even our rollover budget has changed from one week to the next because of our continuing um, enrollment and the needs of our students. So Glenn has, um, I'm gonna pass this over to Glenn to, to he's gonna put up, um, share his screen to, to look at the uh, details of the request and the um, financial amounts attached to these uh, requests. Can you see? Okay. Yes. So again, these are requests. These are, um, there's two pieces of this. First, to give you an idea of what the, the rollover is, what it will cost us to basically do what we're doing now. And then to go through various requests from the various departments. Um, these are not things that the administration has decided on or anything like that. We have, uh, we'll be presenting our uh, priorities as well. But these are uh, just for your benefit and for your discussion, a list of the things that the various different principals and department heads and so forth uh, believe are important to us for next year. And I, so in terms of doing what we did for uh, this year for next year, it's because we've heard grant funded so many times tonight um, it's hard to compare apples to apples. Um, as you can see from this, we, we got roughly a million and a quarter uh, in ARPA funding for this year. We're only gonna get $280,000 in ARPA funding for next year. And I'll go through it in, in a moment, but the positions that were uh, funded through ARPA for this year that are not being funded through next year are positions that we need. You've heard about some of them tonight, reading specialists, math interventionists, and so forth. So in order to preserve exactly what we're doing now. Um, we need roughly a 2.2 million dollar increase in our overall budget, but some of that is making up for ARPA loss. So the actual cost to the general fund is gonna be just north of $3 million to roll over this budget and uh, preserve the things that are currently being funded by ARPA, as well as the things that we are preserving ourselves. So that's sort of the baseline of this. And for those of you who've been around for a while, $3 million is not an insubstantial ask. Um, you know, this is, uh, it is a 5% on the general fund, if it, even if it's only 3.5% of uh, an increase in our budget. Generally speaking, a 3.6% increase in our budget is, is uh, fairly conservative. But because we have to absorb some of this ARPA funding, it will come at more of a cost to the general fund. So that um, becomes, an issue for this year in, in the sense that it will cost more 
than normal to preserve what it is we currently have. And just to see it all in one place, these are the positions that we have ARPA funding for for this year that we would not have our, we will not have ARPA funding for for next year. Uh, the preschool coordinator, we have this 5014 chair, which is someone who's in charge, similar to the uh, special education team chairs. This is people who have 504 plans under the Americans with Disabilities Act. It's a position we've never actually had before. Um, one of the two elementary math interventionists is grant funded with funds expiring this year. The other is actually grant funded with funds expiring next year, but one of them expires this year. Uh, one of the elementary reading specialists is this year a high school math teacher. Um, you might remember that our, our kindergarten aides used to be 0.8 FTEs. They were only there for not, for not entirely the whole day. With the ARPA funding, we moved them to full day. Um, that's something that's actually been in the works for a long time, because if you think about it, when, when do you need that extra body in a kindergarten classroom most? Probably at the beginning of the day when they're coming in and at the end of the day when you're trying to get them out between, especially in wintertime with boots and coats and so forth. And literally they were only there one of those two times. Um, two part-time nurses. It's hard to uh, underestimate the value of the extra nursing staff we got during this time period. Um, two preschool teachers, two of a board certified behavioral analysis analysts, again, BCBAs, these are uh, dealing with our special ed population and three of the special education aides. Um, as we sing the song over and over again, the, the special ed needs are essentially bills to the district. These are legal requirements for these uh, students' educational plans. Um, these are things we have to do. But this is the, these are the positions that we're talking about what we call the ARPA positions, the positions that we currently have that um, it's hard to, uh, I think it's hard to argue that any of them uh, we won't need next year. I mean, those are uh, fairly vital positions. So again, how does that increase break down? Rolling over the staff that's not in the ARPA is almost $2 million. And again, if you could look historically, that's about average. Um, you know, it's it usually just plus or minus $2 million to roll over our existing staff. But to retain the ARPA funded staff this year is a million dollars. Um, it was a little, you know, uh, it was a little less, a little more. Um, the other things in the budget, uh, special, special education tuition, our buses, special education buses, contracted services are up by, uh, we expect about a quarter of a million dollars. Utility costs, we have uh, increased by about $350,000. Um, that's a discussion in and of itself. We all know where uh, energy costs are going. Uh, this is something I've been in contact with the town about. Uh, we are locked into electric rates through December of 23, thankfully, because we spend a lot on electricity, uh, $1.1 million or so. But our, uh, the town's natural gas contract is up. And um, even though that's, uh, that's very volatile and hard to predict right now, um, in the past, we worked with various vendors to try to lock in rates at different times, but almost anyone will tell you that this, at this particular moment is not the time to lock in a rate. Um, it's, it's very unstable right now. So I'm working with the town to sort of refine these numbers. In, inflation on our other expenses is not high. Um, we did have some free cash used last year that will not be used again this year because that was for some of the curriculum implementation. 
So that's why the net uh, total increase to the general fund is $3.2 million. So the rest of this is sort of what else? And it's hard to say what else when you've just asked for $3 million. But the, the point is there are things that we need to do um, and we have to, part of the uh, discussion that you'll be having with uh, the budget and what uh, we present eventually to the town and the Warren Committee is what requests do we have to make? Um, one, either that we absolutely need right now or two that we recognize we may not get, but we have to make the need known. So in a sense to make play the, to lay the groundwork for even next year, as you've known in the past, we've asked for things at various times, um, but not, uh, not everything gets funded. But when you come back and say, you know, we've asked for this three times in a row, um, it starts to sink in. So the sum of it is to, to express the need. Here are some um, issues in, in the special ed department. First off, uh, psychologist, speech therapist, OT and PT, these are uh, positions that we need based on IEPs. And actually in the past we had uh, 5.6 psychologists, this year we only have five because we couldn't hire that additional person. And we have spent more on psychological services, contracting them out than it would have cost us to hire the psychologist. So in some sense, hiring the psychologist in, in very real sense is, um, is a money saver. So in fact, I would even suggest that we don't put this in the budget, the, the psychologist at the budget request, we're just gonna try to hire one because the sooner we hire one, the better off we're gonna be in terms of our budget for this year, let alone for uh, next year. But the speech therapist and halftime OT and PT are uh, needs that we're seeing based on IEPs that we are gonna need increases at those services for next year. Physical therapist, just to give you a for instance, we only have one physical therapist for the entire school district. Um, that's, as you might imagine, not a lot. Um, and then also within the realm of special education, you've heard uh, much about our uh, course, our classes at the Collicott School for students on individual uh, who are on the autism spectrum, the so-called NEC classes they're sometimes referred to. Uh, these have become very popular. Um, we have students moving into the district for these services from other districts, um, and they tell us that explicitly. Um, and in fact, both of the, the three classes that are at the Collicott now are all full to their limit. Um, there are a limits to sizes of number of students that you could put in these classes for uh, per DESI guidelines. And so in fact, we need another one for next year um, to service uh, children on the autism spectrum. If we don't do this, um, they're gonna go out of district um, and it's gonna cost us more. So, I mean, this is a very real need. And similar to that, the first, um, some of the early groups of the students in that program are now uh, merging into the high school. And so we need a teacher at the high school who's trained uh, as a, you know, ABA teacher who can deal with the students on, um, on this, uh, spectrum as well, because these uh, we have a cohort now that will be uh, four new students will be reaching the high school next year. So we need a teacher who's specifically trained to deal with these students. So again, these are, they are new costs. There's no question about it. These are people we don't have now, 
but um, there's, there are positions we really need to fill because the cost of not filling them is gonna be much greater than the cost of filling them when you're start talking about out of district placements for these students at uh, $125,000 to $150,000 a year plus uh, transportation that's easily forty dollars or $50,000 a year. Medical model classroom is another one of these. Um, and this is uh, slightly different. This is for students who have uh, medical needs that are very specialized. Uh, notice a special education teacher, a speech pathologist, and a nurse. Um, without getting too specific, we've had a student move in in the last couple of weeks who fits this category, and we've actually had to hire a one-on-one -on -one teacher um, to, uh, to, to deal with this student, and we are contracting with a nurse at what's working out to a cost of close to $1,000 a day for the nurse, for nursing services. So we already have this special education teacher um, and we have we would have to hire a pathologist and a full-time nurse, but we have two other students in this position who have been moved out of district who would like to come back. So in fact, if we hire these, um, this will be cost neutral because we'll save on the um, special education tuitions for the students who are out of district we already actually own the teacher. So again, this is one of the ones, you know, I'm, I'm, we're giving you for your information. It's actually to be uh, technical, probably not a part of our budget ask because it's something that uh, is actually fiscally responsible to do and set up now to save money uh, as opposed to uh, spending more on out of district tuitions. But given a case here where we'd actually be bringing some students back into district, this actually is not only cost avoidance, this is cost neutral or even possibly saving us some money. The intensive learning classroom is, is different. This is um, a class where we're looking to set up. Um, the director of uh, pupil personnel, Sue Maselli, was talking about the fact that we have uh, special needs uh, services at you know, Collicott for the kids on the autism spectrum. We have it at Cunningham. Of the collaborative classrooms. We have a variety of programs at Glover. We don't really have any um, special needs programs at Tucker. And, <coughs> excuse me, um, students there who have special needs often end up getting moved to other schools. In this case, we have some young children, uh, kindergarten and pre-K, who are, who really need some intensive support just to get on track again um, they, some of them are on the verge of becoming special needs students or may become special needs students, but we can, with a little intervention early at, uh, at this level, we hope to be able to keep them um, in, in regular education, general education classrooms and not send them off into the sub-separate world. This is, you know, this is not a, an absolute requirement of, of IEPs, unlike some of the other ones but it is a program that we think is, uh, is cost effective and worth doing, but it is a new ask. Um, one of the other things the director of special ed uh, talked about is out of district coordinator. We currently have 50 students out of district. These require still team meetings at those schools. Um, you have to go around, visit the schools, visit the students in situ. You have to talk to the teachers and so forth. It's 
just like regular individual education programs, but on sites. We currently have two part-time people who do it. We had 2.3 FTE people. Um, one of them had to be converted into a team chair at the middle school to handle our in-district children. And the director of the uh, assistant director of special education are actually going out and doing the remainder of these visits themselves. Um, she is requesting that we um, Im uh, improve this position to just a full-time position, give one person the responsibility for dealing with all the um, out-of-district uh, children. <laughs> Excuse me. The um, Director of Diversity, uh, Equity, Inclusion came in and talked about some of the needs she felt we had for that department. She had requested an assistant director, um, some equity coaches, which would be full-time positions. Um, she had also talked about equity facilitators, uh, people at uh, one person at each of the school who would help um, on a stipended basis with uh, some of the programs that we're putting forward and a variety of costs for professional development. This is a new position, the, the director, and she's trying to build a cohort of people to help her uh, perform her, her job and we can speak more of that as well. The elementary schools, uh, other than what you've saw before, uh, referring to something that was mentioned earlier on, the two math interventionists have a huge caseload. Uh, we think we need a third one. Um, I mean, just to, to manage the caseload, there are children who are not being serviced because we just don't have the staff. So not only do we need to fund the second one through the ARPA, we need to fund a brand new third one. The middle school is requests were based on um, the, uh, you know, rolling up of our expansion of students into the sixth grade. Um, we actually talked about this this afternoon. Uh, the, uh, the issue of adding a, an additional team at grade six, we're actually looking actually at a, a different possibility of a half team at grade six. A half team would be two teachers instead of four, one to do math and science, one to do English and social studies. It would be a smaller, it would be a half the number of students in the team. So it would move from basically three teams in the sixth grade to three and a half. Uh, the, the other team model is a little different. But we would look at that, you know, we are still looking at that within the administration as what's the best way to go with that in, in the middle school. The exploratory teachers at the middle school, um, actually, the, it, this is, again, related to primarily sixth grade, but not entirely. Um, the enrollment uh, push in the middle school has really strained the exploratory classes even more so than the team classes. You have many more high level, uh, high uh, enrollment classes in the exploratories, particularly technology. Principal Fish was telling us those courses are very, uh, very full. And based on the requests of people moving up from five to six, um, we will need more uh, teachers for exploratory classes. It's not clear yet. Uh, we're, we do that. He does that in response to uh, interest as to what the other one would be. But he was asking for two exploratory teachers um, to help class size in the middle school and some curriculum and resources um, as well uh, related to those. 
At the high school, uh, those of you who have seen earlier versions, see this is pared down a little. This is actually in, um, in order of preference by the high school principal. Her business tech teacher, the business tech classes are absolutely full. Um, the, they offer macro and, uh, and microeconomics at the AP level. And because those are popular courses, there's a, a lack of availability of some of the other courses. The uh, financial accounting this year isn't running at all because we don't have staff to run it. Marketing, which is usually two sections, only has one. Intro Econ only has one. Tech Essentials, which usually has four, is down to two courses. There's a lot of demand for technology courses at the high school and not um, and not enough staff for it. Um, her second, her co-first um, uh, request is actually the special ed. This is a special ed position that we talked about earlier on for the high school. Special ed and technology, tech business tech are the high school principal's primary uh, requests. PE teacher is for class size. Some of those classes are huge. It's hard to, um, to supervise that many students who are by definition active um, in, a, in a one setting. World language teachers, uh, especially Spanish and some Latin, uh, we, uh, those classes are getting large. Science and math are large. But again, these are um, basically prioritized by the high school principal in this order. And then finally, um, which many of you have heard before, our tech staff has got to be the leanest tech staff um, anywhere. Uh, we have the director of technology and three people um, that run this entire system from the network itself through you know, all the one-on-one devices, well over 5,000 devices. Um, thankfully, we have a class of students at the high school who do things like fixed screens and things like that. If we didn't have them, um, the, the system would grind to a halt. But really, for five buildings, having five people, you would sort of think is the minimum. Um, someone asked about the size of this. I said, yes, in the in, in the 20 years I've been either on school committee or working with the, uh, in, the in the schools, uh, we have added one person to this staff over the last 20 years. Um, but if you think about what uh, technology and system looked like in 2003 versus what it looks like now, uh, that one person is just you know, a drop in the bucket. So again, those are uh, the things we've been discussing. Those are where the various different um, department heads and so forth have come in to express their interest. Um, that's sort of an overview of where we are. Finance has been talking about this and will continue to talk about this with the uh, obvious goal of coming up with a prioritized request for, uh, you know, or a leveled request or a layered request, whatever you want to call it, for uh, the ward committee and ultimately uh, to town meeting for a, a budget for fiscal 24. So for discussion purposes, uh, that's very much where we are right now. All right, thank you, Glenn. Um, so I'm just gonna open it up for comments and questions and discussion with members of the school committee and administration who would like to respond. I see Beverly, Beverly? Hand. Okay. 
Mm -hmm. um, Glenn, I'd like to thank you for so thoroughly walking through the request of the administration. We've had two, if not three, um, finance committee meetings where we started to come up with some rationale between how do we winnow down this list. But I think the bigger point here um, was something that was shared by Amy Dexter during the budget discussions we had in spring of 2022, which is, you know, we get a significant amount of feedback about Milton's ranking relative to other districts. And I believe the last time it was 40. But through Amy Dexter's analysis, we determined that we spend, I think, 315th out of 410 districts. But the point is we're in the bottom quartile for spending per pupil, but we are in the top quartile for performance. And the real challenge we have in Milton, it's not an expense problem, it's a spending problem. And the people who are paying the most for um, the town's challenges financially are our students. I think many of the requests that were posed to us by our administrators reflect the needs of our students. And, um, you know, we have feedback from community members about academic excellence. And we saw the presentation today where it shows we have very thoughtful and thorough and thinking administrators who recognize where we have challenges, but then we are handcuffing them with allocating the appropriate resources to do what's in the best interest of our students. So I say all this to say, as we begin talking about the townwide financial situation, we need to be more pragmatic and, and move beyond the smaller conversations about um, you know, whether or not there's enough commercial property and what's too much and you know, what's too much development and you know, whether or not we can afford to pay more than a two and a half percent increase in our property taxes. The reasons why many of us have, who've been here for years, have realized appreciation in our property values, it's because of the efforts of some of the people that we're looking at today, who've worked very hard to make sure that in spite of having limited resources, we make the best of what we have. And I hope that when we begin to seek townwide approval for an operational override, that the people who want to have academic excellence and wanna have the appropriate supports so we can provide an equitable education, all rally around what's in the best interest of the entire community, which is investing in the resources that we need to make sure our students um, achieve to their greatest potential. So thank you very much for your time, Glenn, and for all the people who have been putting in the hard work. Thank you, Member Vargis. Um, thank you so much, Glenn. I have not been um, able to attend the finance subcommittee meeting, so this is really, really helpful for me. Um, I just had a quick question on um, a couple of things. My first one was with the, the special ed needs increasing, is there like, I, and I'm sure you probably already have, but I, I would love to know, like, are there grants and things that we're looking in to kind of offset some of the costs? We do get some, <clears throat> there, are, there are a variety of federal grants that we get. There's a, the IDEA grant that we get every year. It's about $1.3 million. Um, 
that one get used as we're used primarily to, to uh, hire special education aides. So a good number of our aides are actually on that grant. Um, and those are actually not in the budget numbers that you saw. Okay. So there's, there's a, a million three in additional uh, spending okay. there. Now, some of that money this year is being used for the disproportionality issues that uh, Desi cited Milton for about 300,000 goes to that. Okay. Um, but that's one source of grant. We do have a grant for um, uh, preschool. That's another federal grant. Um, and of course, there's a little bit of money from preschool tuition that we used to offset one of the preschool aides there as well. Um, so there are a variety of different grants um, from different sources. We had the ESSER money in the last year and this year. Well, there is some continuing NARPA money. Um, there are a variety of different sources, you know, and then there are a lot of smaller grants. Yeah. Okay. One of the things of when we get our, when I get a chance to do my first quarterly report is uh, I like to put in the various different grants that you've, uh, that you've received in the last, you know, in this case, probably six months or so. But I, we got a uh, notice of another $10,000 grant today that um, uh, we're getting through uh, Nellie May. Uh, we got it actually a couple days ago and another 5,000 that uh, we heard today for various specific purposes. They're, you know, in the grand scheme of things, they're not a lot, but everything helps. So, I mean, we, we are, uh, and you heard uh, Brian Selig earlier on talk about the grant he's applied for. We did get a, a grant uh, this fall through um, Congressman Presley's office that's doing some of the curricular work as well. So that's paying for about $50,000 in curriculum actually through her office. So yeah, there, there are things out there, but you know, uh, everybody's looking. So it's a, you're, you're very much in competition. Great, thank you. I have a question, if I may, uh, Dr. Pavlicek. Um, the at town meeting the other night, we set aside some money in reserve fund in case of um, higher uh, energy costs this year. Do the schools qualify for any of that money? Anyone qualifies in the reserve fund. Um, you just go to the Warren Committee for an appropriation. One of the things I've been talking about with, with Amy Dexter now in her role at Town Hall, in light of the uh, uncertainty about utility costs for next year, I mean, that, that money is there for this fiscal year, the money that was, that was appropriated last night into the reserve fund, is to give them a little extra cushion. Um, basically, for those who don't know, the reserve fund generally has about $250,000 in it. The Warrant Committee controls it. It um, is for unbudgeted and unforeseen expenses. It's generally used at the end of the year for uh, if someone's for some reason is over budget. Um, sometimes you see uh, police or fire overtime exceed their budget mm -hmm. or, you know, a legal cost or various different things that can hit the end of the year. Yeah, yeah. Historically, the schools haven't really taken advantage of it, although we did once for a uh, a bus at the last minute, as I recall, or something like, you know, it has happened once to my recollection, um, but it is money that's there uh, for any use. And as I say, Amy and I were talking about the fact that not only do we need it there, we should be looking at some for next year because it's too hard to predict what especially natural gas prices are for next year. I mean, what we're doing, what I did, and I've been talking with the town hall about that is, since we know the price of electricity through December of next year, 
we're going to have an increase at that point for half a year. So we built in a 10% increase for half a year or roughly a 5% increase in, in electricity costs into our budget. But that's a guess. I mean, we're talking, what is it going to look like 12 months from now? Um, if any of us had that kind of crystal ball, we'd, we'd have a very different jobs. Um, so we're basically putting hedging that aside with the reserve fund as well. So that's part of the discussion for next year is, you know, what is the level of uncertainty and, and how do we deal with that? Mm -hmm. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. I think our, our joint finance committee meetings with the select board are going to be as important as ever this year as we move forward. Thank you. Dr. Carroll. Thank you, Dr. Pavlicek. It was really um, actually so helpful to <clears throat> see this presentation right after the data presentation to be able to really connect the dots, as Beverly was saying, between our needs and, you know, what we can um, do about them. Um, I especially appreciated how you framed many of the updates around special education. Um, I, I thought that's helpful when you explain the um, sort of the special education costs as billed to the district to sort of differentiate and help the community understand, um, you know, in what ways we are just required to provide services for the students that we have here, um, required by law. Um, and so that, that was helpful. It's encouraging, although even if it does pose a challenge, I mean, it's definitely encouraging to hear that we have families who are moving to Milton specifically for the quality of the special education services that are available here and that are newly available here in some cases. Um, and it's also encouraging to hear about out-of-district students who are returning to the district to avail themselves of those services. Um, I appreciate how you were able to frame you know, budget neutral options to um, continue providing those services. Um, and just, you know, if Dumaselli were here, I would say like that, um, that's, that's good news. Um, and, you know, in light of our overcrowding situation, of course, it's, it is not, it's not easy to absorb, but um, I think that's an indication of, you know, the fruits of, of her labors over these past few years, um, just sort of wondering or um, making an inference there. Um, and I also um, just wanted to comment on um, the process from here. I mean, I know that uh, Beverly alluded to what has happened thus far already with winnowing down of, you know, I'm sure other priorities that were initially named that haven't even made it into this presentation. Um, and from here, we will kind of continue to winnow down. But, um, you know, I, I appreciate how you brought the voices of the various leaders in our system who've advocated for these needs. Um, and I look forward to doing, you know, um, doing our best to stay focused on those student needs. Um, and, you know, it's easy to get lost in the big picture of the numbers um, and let it just wash over you. 
um, and not to really focus on like the actual implications and a family by family level, um, classroom by classroom. So thanks a lot. And uh, I know you all have been at it for a while, but you're, you know, here we go. Uh, <laughs> very exciting threshold moment, budget yeah. season. Member White, anything to wrap things up? Um, if anyone wants to come next next Tuesday at 8.30, we'll be there looking at everything all over again. And any of you, if you're available, can can you even call in on the phone? We can put you in on the through the phone if you're available that way as well. So, um, you know, I, I do want to say that Sue Maselli is very interested in the medical classroom, but currently we don't have the space for it. So if some things get moved around, with um, some of our short-term solution possibilities and moving some of our classrooms around, then she would probably have some space to bring in um, the medical classroom um, that she's discussing. And uh, that would be a good thing for the district and, and for those children and their families. So anyway, all right. Okay, that's it. All right, thank you very much. Uh, next on our agenda is health and wellness uh, report. Sure. So um, health and wellness um, advisory committee met for the first time this year on November 18th. Um, member Varghese and I are serving on health and wellness this year rep to represent the school committee. Uh, we had great attendance. It's a terrific group. Um, that represents professionals from all the different um, buildings, several departments around the district, as well as um, the community. So um, I'll just share a few of the updates, uh, the things that we touched upon, which I think served to um, sort of lay out the path for us this coming year. Um, the first thing I won't go into much detail because we've already heard about it even just tonight from um, Karen McDavid sort of reiterating updates around the SEL advisory um, committee, which had been gone into much more detail at our community forum recently. Um, but that was that was an um, encouraging set of updates. The key highlights there were just um, that the district has been able to add those two SEL leaders per school. So they're really putting focus on that safe and supportive schools um, priority. The two things we've heard about, of course, focus areas of trauma-sensitive, um, trauma-informed classrooms and schools and the Calm Classroom Initiative. And, you know, as we've heard, those professional development initiatives are grant-funded. Um, we had updates from the Milton Health Department um, one exciting update is that um, we now have Ann Grossman on staff there, who's a community social worker um, and of particular interest, I think, to our committee. Um, she's engaged in a um, cross, like a collaborative relationship, um, working, if I understand it, most closely with Jenny Belleville at the high school, um, who is sharing referrals so that um, and Grossman can support individual students and families with needs as they arise. And that's a uh, support that had not been in place um, in that way before. So that was great to, to learn about. Um, there is also from the health department an update around this um, 
mass mass in motion grant project, which is on food insecurity. So that's a project that's um, underway right now, um, as well as a grant to um, support language access, um, allowing for residents to receive um, resources that are translated into um, their their language. Um, so those were some great things to learn about around um, some of those equity inclusion priorities for the town. Um, there, I think this is still the case, but um, there was also the update about there having been a number of successful flu vaccine clinics uh, offered to the town and that any residents of the town that hadn't had an opportunity yet to receive a flu vaccine that wanted one could at this point contact the health department where as of a couple weeks ago, they still had extra vaccine available. Um, we had updates from the Milton Coalition. Um, we're really lucky to have um, a couple of student representatives on this advisory committee in addition um, to leaders from the coalition itself. Um, they provided updates on, um, let me make sure I look at the right notes. Um, they provided updates on the community assessment that they have conducted every three years, which is really um, designed to understand the prevalence of um, risk behaviors among youth in Milton, including substance use. Um, and that um, assessment is in the, the most recent one is in the final stages of analysis. Now that's something that the coalition will be presenting to the school committee in the future and um, able to present to the community sometime this spring. Um, so that will be good for us to look out for. Um, and I also wanted to share um, that there is a community health assessment underway. Um, this is in coordination with the health department as well. Um, and that's to identify plans for community health improvement plan. Um, the um, former head of the coalition, um, Lori Stillman is coordinating that effort. Um, I wanted to share a couple of events on behalf of the coalition that were brought up. Um, I think many community members and MPS community members have received these in update in emails rather, but um, there's a great exhibit at the Milton Public Library right now. Um, it's called Voices to Exhibits that Raise the Voices of Milton Residents. And um, the two components of that, um, of that exhibit include voices of family members who have lost um, loved ones, lost family members to substance use disorder in Milton. And there's also another one that features art by young people in Milton. So encourage everyone to check those exhibits out at the Milton Public Library. On January 9th at 7 p.m., uh, there will be an event open to the community to uh, Dr. Kevin Hill will talk about um, marijuana and addiction. And then on February 10th, the time is still TBD. Uh, but there will be a youth mental health first aid training for uh, Milton employees and residents. So these are some really good opportunities uh, for us to um, be aware of. Um, we had an update 
around the health curriculum pilot, which is underway this year. Um, and as has been mentioned in previous meetings, um, and including at the community forum on safe and supportive schools, um, there's currently a pilot underway of the Michigan model um, health curriculum, which is a research-based curriculum. Um, and we didn't hear a lot about that at our meeting, that uh, our previous meeting. Um, that will be something that we spend more time on this, this coming year um, to learn about how that's going and be able to make decisions uh, based on that about the rollout um, and sort of ongoing updates to the health um, curriculum, which is in the context of the Massachusetts state standards around um, health also needing to be updated. Um, and so this is a, going to be one of the main focuses of this committee this year. Um, last year, Member White um, chaired the Health and Wellness Advisory Committee, and we focused a lot on updating the wellness policy, which was really focused on nutrition and, and our food services program. Um, we are not going to focus on that as much this year, although next year we anticipate the need to um, participate in sort of the next level of the coaching program we were in last year with the DESE coaching um, initiative that we were supported. Um, that's kind of how we went through the process of updating our policy. Uh, not this year, but next year, we will focus more on implementation of that updated policy with some support from DESE. Um, so Natalia Perez, who's leading our food service program now, sort of indicated that uh, that is something we can look forward to spending time on next year. Um, so I think that's just about it. I'm not sure, Anna, if I, you think I may have missed anything, um, but our next meeting, um, when is our next meeting? I wanna say it's a week from Friday um, and we're continuing to meet on a Friday morning once a month. Um, I guess lastly, we did discuss uh, the format of our meetings going forward and concluded that because the time of the meeting is early morning um, and because we're really lucky to have so many folks joining this um, committee from all over town, that the virtual format for meetings really does continue to work best for us. Um, it allows people to um, join from different buildings while they're right about to start the school day. Um, and so that's really important for remaining accessible to the great people, uh, principals, teachers um, that are part of the team. Um, so we'll continue to do that. Um, and members of the Milton Coalition that include the high school students will, will be um, sort of meeting together in the, in the high school to join that virtual meeting. So that's pretty much the um, report that I have so far. Anna, did I miss anything? No, I think you covered everything. Thank you. Off to a good start. So um, we'll keep you all updated in January probably will be our next opportunity for that. Very good. Thank you, Dr. Carroll and Member Varghese. Um, okay, next on our agenda is approval of minutes. We have minutes in our packet from uh, November 16th. Um, we, those of us who are still on, um, 
Remember Ross Denny had to get off because she's on the other side of the country and had to get on to a meeting. Um, but uh, um, those of us who were on were, were at that meeting. Um, I, I take um, a, a motion, I'll make a motion to approve the minutes of November 16th, 2022. Have a second, please. Second. Thank you. We'll do a roll call vote. Uh, Dr. Carroll? Yes. Member Varghese? Yes. Uh, Member White? Yes. And Chair Rosemarin, yes. Very good, thank you. Uh, and last item is next meeting agenda items. And um, I've been keeping a running list um, of what we have on, on tap and it's a big meeting. I'm just gonna warn you up front, we're gonna have to do the best we can to um, try to make it work. We have uh, our student advisory council, which is very exciting. Uh, finally have them come and, and meet them and hear from them for the first time. We have the Cunningham Site Council. Uh, we're gonna be looking again at the FY24 prioritized bu budget. Um, we're gonna be looking at, is this correct? The FY24 fee proposal, is that, is that correct? Is that still on the agenda for next time? That makes sense. It should either be on the agenda for next time or the beginning of uh, January, but you want to give people notice if there are going to be fee changes for next year. Right. Uh, <clears throat> given that we're spending all the time on the budget right now, um, it might be a little bit of a push to do it for next time, but let's, yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll, I will check in with various folks to see if they're ready to look at that or not. Okay. So I'd leave right. it there for now, but we may take it off. Okay. That sounds great. That sounds great. Um, we also uh, plan to have a school building committee presentation. Uh, the screening committee will come and report on the finalists for superintendent candidates. And we have a policy subcommittee report. So it's going to be a packed meeting. Um, um, it will also be remote as, as we are tonight. Um, and uh, with that, I would entertain a motion to adjourn. I'll move. Motion to adjourn. Thank you. Um, I'll do a roll call vote. Dr. Carroll? Yes. Member White? Yes. Member Varghese? Yes. Chair Rosemarin, yes. Thank you very much. Have a good night, everybody. Thanks, bye. See you soon. Bye-bye.